Well, if you could have, I sound very loud. Maybe that's just to me. Um, if you could have been here, uh, if you could have been here earlier when we were uh, going uh, through our run through up here, it's amazing no one's fallen off the stage yet um, or anything like that. So uh, sometimes you just step back on a Sunday morning and say, God, do your thing. Um, do your thing, uh, especially me. I was completely confused up here coming out when I wasn't supposed to. And I don't know, playing around out there when I was supposed to be coming out here. So I'm glad we're to this point in the service. Say hey, We're going to pick up week uh, two of our kingdom series now, and we will be in the book of Genesis still, the book of Genesis, starting at the end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12, end of chapter 11, and beginning of chapter 12. Um, last week we looked at God's creation at our decisions as human beings that, that welcomed and brought and ushered sin in to the world. We saw God's grace covering um, Adam and Eve after those acts of sin. We saw that for the first time uh, blood was shed, an animal was killed, and uh, skins were, were placed on Adam and Eve to cover them. We saw God's um, intent and his purpose for um, human community with himself at the center. Um, as the object of worship and the one holding it all together continues, he blesses Adam and Eve in spite of their sin and rebellion. And they give birth to Cain and Abel. They, they didn't actually give birth. Rather, she gave birth to Cain and Abel. Um, and you know that from that point on, Cain and Abel have issues as brothers. And, and all of a sudden, sin goes from eating something we're not supposed to um, and trying to blame it on everyone else to murder and just a, a rapid spiral down in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And if you've ever uh, chosen to dance a while with sin or had someone that you care deeply about do that, you'll notice that type of downward spiral that once sin grabs a hold of you, it pulls you deeper and deeper and deeper into life. And we wonder, is God's great plan, is his great dream of this inclusive human community of loving persons with himself as the chief participant broken beyond repair. Not beyond God's ability to repair, but beyond his willingness to repair, his desire to repair. Will God run out of patience? Will he give up on the human race? Tell me you haven't been in some season of your life with one issue or another where you thought to yourself, I wonder if God's going to run out of patience with me with regard to this, to this attitude, to this behavior, to this feeling. And you and I wonder at times in our own lives, can God really bring beauty from ashes? Because it doesn't take very long into this life before something goes awry, before some sense of the train coming off the tracks happens. And we realize life's not going to go exactly as I'd planned. Anyone discovered that in your own life? Can God bring beauty from ashes? We wonder this if you're thoughtful and intentional and slow down when you read Genesis. That's always the challenge when we come to something that is um, fairly familiar for many of us who've been in church a long time. I hope there are some of you out here this morning in this room or maybe watching online for whom Genesis is not that familiar. You're exploring and you're discovering for the first time. But God doesn't give up. Instead of giving up, he comes to one region of the world in one moment 
to one man. His name's Abram. God will soon change his name to Abraham. That's how I'll refer to him this moment. And he, he, or this morning, he comes and he makes a covenant with this one man from this one region of the world at this one moment in human history. And I think it's important if you and I are going to understand the scriptures well, if we're going to understand what God's doing and how it impacts us and what he's inviting us into, we've got to understand this concept of covenant. And a covenant is simply a, a, a voluntary means, a voluntary means of establishing a binding relationship where none existed before. It's a voluntary means of establishing a binding relationship where none had existed before. Can you uh, think of uh, some illustration of a covenant in, in our life today? Marriage, yes. <laughs> Usually we're not even sure anymore if that's supposed to be a binding covenant where one had not, a binding relationship where one had not existed before. But yes, in fact, it is. It absolutely is. And guys, this is part of what makes a divorce when that happens in, in a family so tragic. It's not just the human consequences of it, but it's a fracturing before the world of a relationship that God designed to mirror and to reflect his relationship with his people, which is a covenant relationship uh, until death parts us, and not even then does that separate us from the love of Christ. And God says that marriage is supposed to mirror that to the world, but we have gotten confused over the last number of decades. Not that divorce hasn't always been with us. We see in the Old and New Testament it has. But we've gotten confused to where we believe the purpose of it is my happiness rather than my holiness. We've gotten to where we believe marriage is an institution of man, not an institution of God. That God is the one who defines the parameters. And that when we try to do marriage without him at the center, it's going to be a train wreck. Hey, can we just be honest and say sometimes it's a train wreck with God at the center of it? Three of you know what I'm talking about. Let's, look up, let's, let's pick this up and let's look uh, beginning in Genesis chapter 11. We'll start with verse 31. Before I read though, let me pray for us. I, I always, I, you know, I'm always prayerful, obviously, through the week and before I come out here, um, understanding that I, I can't do anything that, that creates life change. Only God can do that. But I think any time we're, we're going back over some that for something that for many of us is familiar, I think it's especially prudent to pause, to humble ourselves before God, and to ask for his presence and his help. Let's do that this morning. Heavenly Father, you are here present with us. Lord Jesus, risen Savior, Messiah, and King. You are present with us as we gather this morning in your name and for your glory. And God, it's my prayer, it's my plea that you will do in our lives this morning what only you can do. What human preparation, human gifting, human ability simply cannot accomplish. God, take your written word breathe through your Holy Spirit life into it and cause it to become your living word in this room for us at this time. Father, move it from our minds to our hearts. And may we be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's, let's pick up the story in Genesis chapter 11, actually starting with verse 30. Now Sarai, Sarai, some of you will know and remember that was uh, Abram's wife's name, God will change to Sarah, how I'll refer to her mostly this morning, Abraham and Sarah. Now Sarai was childless 
because she was not able to conceive. Let me pause just for a minute because this matters. The writer of Genesis takes time and intentionality to tell us why Sarai is childless. She's not childless because she chose not to have kids and to climb the corporate ladder. She's not childless because she's chosen to pursue different things in life. She's childless in a culture and a time in human history where your worth and your value as a woman was 100% defined by your ability to have children and specifically male children. And the writer of Genesis is letting us know that Sarai is a woman who has lived with a tremendous amount of pain and most certainly humiliation and shame. She was childless because she was not able to conceive. Some of you have known that pain. Some of you may know that pain this morning. Terah took his son, Abram, his grandson, Lot, son of Haran. The writer of Genesis is separating them, letting us know that Abraham or Abram and Lot weren't brothers. And his daughter-in-law, Sarai, the wife of his son, Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is in modern-day Iraq, to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died. 205 years, and he died in Haran. Can we probably all agree that 205 is enough? Like, I'm 40-something or other, and I can guarantee you if I get to 205, I'm done, right? I'm ready to throw the towel in. You can't imagine the amount of medication and creams and other things it would take to keep me propped up two centuries in. Now, chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord, the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and I will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All right, let's, let's pause there for just a minute. Out of nowhere in Abraham's life, the voice of this God that Abraham didn't know comes to him. And he speaks to him. And he calls him out. And the first thing that God always does in your life and mine, in our life as a community, when we seek to follow him from that moment when you first said yes to God, is call us out of an old way of life. That's part of what makes baptism so theologically significant symbolically. That when you go under the water and you come back up, it's a very visible picture to the people of God and to anyone watching that God's called you out of an old way of life and into new. That through a power that you and I don't understand and a mystery, God has, through your faith in His grace, united you in the crucifixion of His Son and in His resurrection. And your sin's now been paid for by the blood of Christ. And you live now a new life. And he comes and he says, hey, leave your country, your people, your tribe, your father's household, everything, listen, leave everything that is safe and familiar and known to you, including your old gods. Uh, we find out in Joshua 24 too, the text tells us this, that long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. 
So Abraham and his family had been a worshiper of pagan gods. And all of a sudden, Yahweh comes to him. And he says, I want you to go. Now pay attention to the language here. He says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household. That last one would include basically everything that you've known. Everything that's familiar, the way that you've structured your understanding about the world and the gods and who you are, to the land I will show you. Now that's a bit vague, isn't it? It is. Remember, Abraham was married. Wives like details. Wives, any of you known your husband to give less than all the information at times about something? Any of you ladies ever said, well, you never told me that? Any of you wives ever wished your husband was a little more detail-oriented at times? And this has always been the case. Can you imagine the conversation when Abraham goes to Sarah? He's like, hey, babe, pack it up. We're going to get out of here. Oh, really? Where are we going? I'm not sure. Well, why are we going? God said to go. God who? I don't know. God, he didn't give me his last name. Well, how will we know when we get there? Huh? He'll tell us. I mean, these are real people, right? That conversation probably didn't go well. They probably had a fight. She probably accused Abraham of not communicating well. He probably didn't communicate well. But this is often how God works. He often says, come, I want you to start walking before I, real, before I reveal all the details to you. I want you to step into the Jordan before I'll split the water. I want you to exercise some faith before you can understand fully where you're going. And he says, I want you to leave behind all of this that has been familiar to me, or to you. And there's a theological principle here called the principle of separation that we see throughout the Old and the New Testament where God calls his people out of old patterns of thinking, old patterns of living, old value systems to be his. The word ekklesia in Greek that means church, that we translate church, means to be called out. To be assembled for a different kind of purpose. And this is God's call in your life. It's God's call in your life this morning. It's God's call in our life as a church. Now, unless you think, we're tempted to think this sometimes as 21st century men and women. Unless you think that uh, Abraham was just uh, some unsophisticated nomad I want you to understand that when God's call comes to him there's a lot on the line for Abraham there's a lot at stake they're living in Haran God had, God had called them to go to the land of Canaan but Abraham's dad had stopped in Haran and that's where they'd settled and Haran is listed in Ezekiel 27 as one of the major commercial centers and trade centers in the ancient world it's on the Euphrates River and here, Abraham is known, he's respected. He has influence and a measure of wealth and power. He is well off. Haran occupied a strategic position, a strategic position at the intersection of several prominent trade routes that ran from ancient Mesopotamia to the Mediterranean Sea. It was a center for culture 
and activity and commerce and shopping. And all of a sudden God says, go. I want you to leave the city. I want you to leave your culture. I want you to leave your people and your father's people. You're going to go to the land that I'll show you. There's this call to leave it all behind. But on the other side, there's this voice of this God saying, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And I'm going to bless you. You notice what word is repeated five times in the opening verses of chapter 12? It's bless. I will bless you. You'll be a blessing to others. You will be blessed. I'll bless those that bless you. God is saying, come. Come, step into a new season of blessing. Step into a work and a life that you could not have imagined. But to do it, you've got to release your grip on all that you've known, on all that's been familiar, and on all that's been comfortable. But if you'll come, I'll do something with your life that you never could have dreamed of. It would never have happened if you just sat around Heron, enjoying all that was familiar to you. In order to receive this blessing that we see repeated over and over in the opening verses of chapter 12, Abraham's got to leave. He's got to step out of what's familiar, what has been, what is comfortable. It's the same for us as individuals and churches. Maybe God's calling you this morning to leave something behind that you've been holding on to, you've been dragging forward with you. And there's the voice of God saying, let it go. Let it go. Trust me. Maybe it's malice or bitterness towards someone who's hurt you or someone who's hurt someone that you love. Maybe God's calling you to let go of an old dream. You finally have just realized, guys, you're not going to make it to the NFL. You're realizing what your coaches knew all along. That as good as you were, you had a cap on it, right? All of us have dreams that along the way we've got to kind of die to. We've got to release. Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe there's an attitude you have that's poisoning relationships. And God's saying, let it go. It's familiar to you. It's comfortable to you. But it's poisoning your friendships. It's poisoning your relationships. Leave it behind. Maybe you're someone who just needs to stop looking back and start looking forward where God is. To remember that the rearview mirror is small in a car and the windshield's large. That you're made to, to glance back while staring forward. Where God's out at work and he's calling us into his kingdom work. He's reminding us of what he said in Galatians 5.25 where he says, Let us keep in step with the Spirit. That the Spirit of God is always on the move. The Spirit of God is always working. And if we're going to be kingdom people, we've got to stay in step with the Spirit. Maybe He's simply calling you to take a new step of faith or to risk something for Him, to serve in a way you've never served. Maybe God's put in your heart the, the dream for some kind of ministry that can be a Christ-centered blessing to our community in some way. I don't know what it is, but the same call that came to Abraham comes to you and to me as God's people. Look at verse 4 of chapter 12. So Abram went. 
So Abram went. Do, do you understand how much hinged on Abraham's decision to say yes to God here? So much hinged on it. But God is good. And Abraham goes. He went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. Don't miss this. He was not an 18-year-old comfortable with risk who thought he was going to live forever. He was 75 years old, and he decided he was not going to stop learning and stop living. He was going to follow the voice of God. Man, I, ho I hope that's where I am at 75 if God gives me those years. I hope at 75 I'm still on fire. I think about that a lot as I'm trying to wean myself off of two and a half months of southern food already. Say, <laughs> if I don't start doing that, I won't be running anywhere at 75 except to the hospital. Verse 5, this is not be up on the screens, but I just think it's important for us to hear. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had accumulated or acquired in Haran. That's exactly what you think it is. Abraham's alive in a day when not only patriarchy and sexism reigns during the day, but so does uh, indentured servitude and slavery. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Don't miss that last portion. That's important. They arrived there. When God calls you to go somewhere and you say yes and follow, friends, you're going to arrive there. It may be slower than you anticipated. Everything is slower than I anticipate it's going to be. It may be bumpier than you thought it was going to be. You may have had to go right when you thought you were going to go left or had to go left when you thought you were going to go right. But the one who's moving here is God. If you look back at verses 12 and or verses uh, 2 and 3 again of chapter 12, you see, I will make you, I will make your name, I will bless those. Who's the active agent here in Abraham's life? Is it Abraham or is it God? It's God. God is always the active agent in what he's doing. So Abraham is off and running. But remember, these are real people living at a real time and place in human history. That's why I say over and over that the Bible is theologically centered but historically grounded. And Abraham gets some things wrong along the way. Any of you ever gotten some things wrong along the way? Some of the most painful experiences in life are errors of judgment. Where they were not errors of intent on our part. They were just simply an error of judgment. Well... Abraham makes some, some big errors, some that are more errors, uh, more um, than errors of, of judgment. If you'll remember, there's a famine in the land, and Abraham has to move on to, to Egypt. And as he's getting to Egypt, he's looking at his wife, and he's saying, you know what? She's actually quite attractive. And I'm going into a foreign land, and he comes up with an idea, as men typically do. And he says, hey, babe, just rolling this out here for you to think about. Uh, we're going into Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world right now. And you're really attractive, and I'm your husband. And there may be a chance that some powerful men, some rulers, some of those in positions of authority in Egypt, would like to say, dispose of me to get to you. So here's what I came up with just off the cuff. See what you think. Why don't you just pretend like you're my sister and not my wife? And we'll see how this goes. 
Sarah doesn't really have a vote in this thing. And that's what happens. And Sarah winds up in Pharaoh's harem. And God's got to intervene. And we have several cycles of this kind of behavior. Wives, any of you feeling now better about your husbands than you were feeling a few minutes ago? Nothing like the Old Testament to make you feel better about your family. But he gets some things right as well, particularly around the issue of possessions and materials. And this is significant because this is an issue that many of us get wrong quite often. He meets, him, he meets a man named Melchizedek, who the text tells us is the, a priest of the Most High God. And, and this is the first time we see the heart of a follower of God moved to give a tithe. Abraham gives a tenth of his possessions, of his resources to Melchizedek to support Melchizedek's ministry. And Abraham learns along this journey of getting some things right and some things wrong that God is at work in people and places that Abraham was unaware of. Can I just tell you this morning that God is at work in places and people that we are unaware of? God is always moving, always working. And through Abraham's getting it right and through Abraham's getting it wrong, God remains faithful. He's called us out of an old way of life, but he's also called us into a new life, into a covenant relationship. Look at chapter 15 of Genesis. Obviously, you'll notice we're skipping, we're hitting pivotal high points in Abraham's life. Chapter 15, we find out that God makes a covenant with Abraham. The Hebrew word here literally is cuts a covenant with Abraham. Let's look at this, beginning with verse 9. Chapter 15 of Genesis. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Now this was messy business. I don't know if any of you have ever cut an animal in two. I hope if you did, you had a legitimate reason for doing so. But this is messy. This is a, a kind of precedes the, the established priesthood in the Old Testament. But being a priest was a messy job. It was an intense job. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. I don't know why that's in there. It's just letting you know the birds he didn't cut in half. Verse 11 is even more interesting. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. I will say this, and I'll point this out to you when I see it often. Part of what we see here is the argument for the truthfulness, the validityness, the validityness, that's not a word, the validity and the historicity of Scripture. Because ancient myth didn't add meaningless details like this. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. It has no bearing on the story, right? There's no reason to put it in there unless it just simply happened. And the writer of Genesis notes it. Now, we know a lot more about covenants today than we did even a few decades ago due to the discovery of several ancient Hittite covenants by anthropologists and archaeologists as they've looked at these things. Covenants were almost always either bilateral or unilateral. Bilateral covenants were between people of equal status and power, like two friends who enter into a covenant maybe to protect one another's land from outsiders or invaders. But almost all covenants are unilateral between a more powerful and less powerful partner. And in these covenant agreements, the one with God and Abram is certainly, clearly unilateral. 
But the interesting thing is, in these ancient covenants that we found and been able to read and study and examine, the more powerful partner always wanted something. There was no reason for them to enter into a covenant agreement with a less powerful partner unless they were going to get something to their benefit out of it. Make sense? The, the less powerful, obviously, they needed things that they did not have access to apart from this covenant relationship. But what about the more powerful partner? They always wanted water rights or grazing lands or natural resources or something. The question is, what does God get out of this? What does God get as all-knowing, all-powerful, supreme and sufficient, the center of all creation and glory? What does he get out of this covenant with Abraham? He knows the human race, the sin, the ingratitude, the heartache, the idolatry, the folly, the self-righteousness. What does God get? Well, what we find out is that God gets someone to bless. He gets a people to bless. He gets a people to invite into this eternal community that he's experienced as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity. He gets a people to call his own. Galatians 3.8 actually says that this is a declaration of the gospel because a clarification, just for our benefit, is that he doesn't choose these people simply to receive his favor, but to be extenders of his, of his favor. To every race, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic group in the world. That they're not called into this relationship, this u- unique relationship with God for themselves, but for the sake of God's world. Galatians 3, 8, the Apostle Paul reminds us that this was actually an announcement of the gospel. Galatians 3, verse 8 says, Scripture foresaw that God would testify, or would justify, I'm sorry, the Gentiles by faith, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So Paul, looking back, says, this is about Jesus. This is about Jesus. That when God was saying, I'll bless all the nations of the world through you, Abraham, that the one through whom that blessing would ultimately come was Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that we're seeing start to unfold in the Old Testament. Start to unfold in the Old Testament. God gets someone to bless. Now, I just want to encourage you with this, that, that we're meant to be blessers. We've been blessed so that we can bless. We say often that the church is a family expecting guests not tolerating visitors that's something else but expecting guests and preparing for guests a couple of weeks ago i had the opportunity to go by and visit with um, jimmy and pat Cantrell, and pat had all kinds of things ready she had lemonade and tea and coffee and warm cookies she was expecting a guest when we gather As Christ's church, we gather in his name and for his glory. And we better gather in a way that demonstrates that we're expecting guests. And we're going to welcome them in. We don't care how young or old they are. We don't care where they are in terms of their understanding about Christ and his lordship in their life. We don't care what race they are. We don't care how much education they are or how much money they make. 
We are a family expecting guests. And I just challenge you to ask yourself, how can you be a blessing to someone this week? How can you just choose to be a blessing to someone this week? Now, don't, don't miss this. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, remember the, the animals had been cut in two and laid side by side? And what would happen is the individuals would take the covenant walk, starting with the weaker and then the stronger, basically saying if either of us breaks this covenant agreement, may what has happened to these animals happen to us. So when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made, literally cut, a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi or river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Don't miss this. God takes the covenant walk. God takes the covenant walk. This is what theologically we call a theophany, which is just a visible manifestation of God or God's presence in a form that people can recognize. And often wind, fire, smoke. These were theophanies in the Old Testament that represented that God was with his people. And you can feel certain that when Abraham cut those animals and laid them side by side, Abraham was expecting to take the covenant walk. And all of a sudden, God comes and God takes it, as if to say, let me be torn into pieces if I don't live up to my end of this covenant this is the covenant keeping god that you and i by his grace have been brought into a relationship with this is a picture of his everlasting love that says you can't outrun my love with your sin where sin abounds grace abounds all the more the apostle paul tells us in the book of romans god's steadfast or everlasting love his covenant love he never runs he never leaves Jeremiah 34, 18 gives us just a, a picture of covenant language when he says, Those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they have cut in two and then walked between its pieces. Now, in Genesis 17, God gives, in verse 11, he gives Abraham a sign of this covenant. Now, God had given Noah a sign of the covenant. You remember God floods the inhabited earth in Noah's day. Noah and his family are saved. God, in a sense, begins again with Noah. And God gives him a sign of the covenant that he'll never flood the earth like that again. Do you remember what the sign of that covenant is? It's a rainbow. I've seen more rainbows since we moved to Georgia in the last two months. Two and a half months that I've seen maybe in the last five years. Yeah, it's a rainbow. God comes to Abraham and he gives him a covenant. It's circumcision. And you can see Abraham saying, but, but Noah got a rainbow. Right? Could we, could, we, could we talk about this, Lord? But Abraham gets circumcision. And before we think this is exclusive, this is an inclusive sign of the covenant of the people of God because anybody, Jew or Gentile, could be circumcised and become part of the people of God. And women in that day were just brought in underneath whatever reigning male existed in their family that was circumcised. This is a forerunner of baptism, which completely levels the field. 
It says, know everyone equally, regardless of race, education level, financial standing, gender, are able to become one in Christ. All share equally in the image of God, the gifting of the Spirit, the work of Christ. Men are baptized. Women are baptized. It's our public profession of faith into God's new community. Circumcision. Now, when you begin to understand covenant, you understand the the cutting of the animals, the sacrifice there. You understand a little bit more about what Jesus said in Luke 22 prior to his crucifixion when he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus is saying, I am about to become both the one whose body is torn and the one who takes the covenant walk. I am the source and the center of the new covenant. God calls us out of an old way of life. He calls us into new life, into a covenant relationship. And finally, he calls us always, evermore, into levels of deeper and deeper trust. Some of you will remember Genesis chapter 22. It's one of the most difficult, stunning, and controversial chapters in all of the Old Testament. But the writer of Genesis wants us to know at the very beginning that it's a test. Most of us read right past that. But the writer of Genesis is, is, is meaning for that to appropriately dismiss some of the tension. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. A hundred years old. More importantly, like see, I tell it from a man's standpoint. More importantly, Sarah was great in years when she gives birth to Isaac. And Isaac begins growing, and they watch this child of the promise get older and older. And then God comes in verse 1 of chapter 22 and says, Abraham. Abraham says, here am I, here am I. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, Mount Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Do you hear that original covenant language? Abraham, leave all that's familiar, all that's comfortable, and go to a land I'll show you. And then the call comes again to Abraham as he's walked with this covenant God for years. He says, Abraham, I need you to take another walk. I need you to gather up your son, the child of the promise, and go to Mount Moriah and there sacrifice him as a burnt offering. But remember, this is only a test. And if you can imagine that walk, Isaac would have been, he's old enough now that he's familiar with this sacrificial system. You can imagine him, Dad, I I see the wood, (laughs) I see the knife, where's the animal? And Abraham says, trust me, son. Where's the animal? Trust me, son. And they get up on Moriah, and Abraham begins to bind Isaac's hands as were done in human sacrifices. And Isaac says, what are you doing, Dad? And he says, trust me, son, trust me. And all Abraham can do in this moment is cast himself on this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God whom he'd walked with for years now and found faithful. And he puts little Isaac up 
on the place of sacrifice. And he raises the knife, trusting God. And God sends a ram, doesn't he? He says, stop, stop. Here's a ram. Sacrifice this instead. And there's a substitutionary atonement that takes place there. A sacrifice pointing toward the ultimate sacrificial atonement of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, in our place. And the question to us this morning is, will we trust Him when we don't understand? Will you trust God when it doesn't make sense? Several years back, I was leading a small group in our house, and there was a woman there um, who was not a believer. She was simply exploring faith in Christ, and she was so mortified by this. She was so repulsed by the God who would invite his servant, Abraham, to sacrifice his son. And part of what she had to learn, and we have to learn this morning, is that part of what God was doing was teaching Abraham and his people that this is not who he is. In a world of child sacrifice, God is making clear, I am not a God of child sacrifice. This is not how I operate. So foreign for us in a culture that values individual life so highly. But we've been at war with people and in places for two decades now where the value of life is very cheap. Where bombs and other kinds of explosives are regularly and routinely strapped on children for the purposes of those creating them. It gives you just a little picture of the culture, a tiny snapshot that Abraham was living in. And God says, it's not me. That's not who I am. And maybe you can hear again Romans 8.32 where Paul says, if the God who did not spare his son for you, but freely gave him for you, did that, will he not give you all good things? Will he not take care of you? And our question always is this, will he, will he do it again? Will God provide for me? Will God provide for us? Will God invite us into a new journey? Out from what's been familiar? Friends, he's doing it already. God's calling us to step out to say, I've got tremendous blessing ahead. But you've got to release what you've known, what's been comfortable, what's been familiar, what you're holding on to in your lives individually and in your life as a church. As the band begins to make their way back up here, let me just throw out for you real fast. I want to expound these, but I just want you to think about them. Three kingdom truths that we see in Abraham's story that we'll see again and again and again. And they're simple. One is simply that God calls. God calls. It's God that calls Abraham. It's God that creates. It's God that redeems. It's God always who initiates. God calls. God sends. God always calls that he might send his people. We, even in this place, even living in our community where some of you have grown up, you are a sent people to a culture lost and broken in sin. And God provides. God calls. God sends. And God provides. We will get to Canaan. God will provide whatever resources or sacrifices are necessary. And he has done so. Provision always follows purpose. God's provision always follows his people engaging his purposes. Kingdom finances, kingdom money always follows, always follows kingdom mission. This is where God is. 
And this is the call that he's inviting us into this morning. Let's stand and pray. God, I'm so grateful. So grateful that you call us not only to be yours. God, that you remind us that we are who you say we are in you. Through Christ. But God, that you invite us to to join you. And God, all of us have a decision before us this morning. Are we going to be people who say yes? God, I will go. Yes, I will trust you. God, I'll step out into new realities and into new kingdom work that's unfamiliar to me, God. That may be uncomfortable to me in the beginning. Trusting that the one who calls is the one who blesses and the one who provides and the one who seeks to do more through me and through us together than we could ever imagine. God, may our answer to you this morning and always be yes. Amen.